I'm Mitch Kimbrell. And I'm Craig Combs. And this is, by my estimation, episode 12. Sounds good. Of From Dan to Beersheba, a podcast of Christ Memorial Church, where Craig serves as associate pastor for education and I serve as senior pastor, which means our next episode is going to be our one-year anniversary ah. of this podcast, which is kind of hard to believe. Woo-hoo. Now, if I gave you... 200 guesses at who I'm about to tell you I found out is a huge fan of this podcast. And you had Christ Memorial Church's uh, directory in front of you. You you would not get this guess with any of those 200 guesses. And I'm going to give the answer away when I start this little anecdote. So I'm driving our four-year-old son to the doctor yesterday and I was listening, before I went to pick him up to take him to the doctor, I was listening to old episodes of this podcast in, in my car. And our son gets in the car. He had heard that it was on, and he wants me... I turned it off assuming he didn't want to hear you and I talk to each other. <laughs> but he wants me to turn it back on, and that's not the first time that's happened. Turns out he... Really likes listening to this podcast. John Mitchell. John Mitchell, our four-year-old son, really likes listening to this podcast. He he. I I turn it off sometimes so I can talk to him. He says, "Please turn on Pastor Craig." So, <laughs> so you've got. We have one fan uh, at least. So I thought that was pretty fun. It's awesome. Uh, so we're talking today about the question: What does free will? mean. And when we arrive at topics, sometimes there are things that you and I are curious about and there are things that uh that that we want people in our church to be um you know more knowledgeable concerning, but this really is the fruit of a couple of of streams. You have been teaching a Sunday school class right now at Christ Memorial Church yes. um, on anthropology is the fancy word. What is a human being um, is another way to ask that question. We had a podcast episode, What is a Human Being? I introduced this topic briefly last year in a Sunday school class on parenting. But when you're talking about anthropology, what does it mean to be a human being? This idea of free will keeps popping up, and one of the reasons why we thought it was a good idea to have an episode on this question is because we've just run into a lot of assumptions. Yes. People use the term free will. I I mean, I know I have free will, they'll say, as though they know what they mean when they say it, and everybody agrees what everybody means when they say it. So our aim today is to try to hopefully bring some clarity on what this phrase means, what it doesn't mean for sure is part of what we want to do. Yes. And uh, that's kind of the genesis behind why we wanted to go after this topic this month. Yeah, that's exactly right, Mitch. It keeps coming up. It keeps coming up in a class I'm teaching, as you say, even when it's not the topic. It The topic just bumps into it. And people will make those assertions and say, oh, I have a free will or so-and-so has a free will, and, and it actually sometimes sort of infringes upon the conversation that we're having about how redemption works. So, you know, as is usual, I could be a broken record of talking about starting points or presuppositions, but anytime you have a bad starting place, 
with a question. You're, you're setting yourself up to have a bad answer. And so I want to say that arguing or discussing the necessity of there being such a thing as free will for people from, from a starting place of an assumed moral assertion is a bad place to start. It's a bad place to start. Help me understand what that phrase yeah. means, an assumed moral assertion. Well, here's another way of, of saying that. Uh, it's bad sometimes to come at a question, let's use the $75 word, economically, how would that work? Instead of coming at it ontologically, what is this thing we're talking about? And so uh, people will often do that because of their perception of a, a moral dilemma if free will were not true. And, and so here's, here's how, a way of saying that. Here's the, the way of stating the dilemma. People in their minds ask this question, how can there be a God who justly punishes creatures for their sin if those people do not have a free will to choose sin or not? And, and that's where people almost always start with this question. That's the only reason they're interested in the question. And the way the question is phrased has made an assumption. It's not a, it's not a how could God. In their minds, it's God could not. It could not be fair. It could not be just for there to be a God who punishes creatures for sin unless those creatures have free will. So free will is just assumed. Now, that's a, that's a faulty assumption. It's a bad presupposition behind the question. And I can tell you a little bit about why that is the case. Even before we get around to saying what is a free will, it is a bad assumption to go, go around thinking that God has to meet some kind of moral standards that are outside of himself. Really, that would make those standards above God, wouldn't it? They'd, God is not to be held subject to some moral standard that someone else made up for him. How absurd that really is. That God doesn't have to meet fairness standards that don't derive from his own being and his own nature. So we always have to have him as our starting point. He's the one that determines what's good. He's the one that determines what's fair, what's just, and, and all the rest. Uh, and so to, for, for a person to say that God's judgment of sinners can only be just if it's fair, and the fairness hinges on the freedom of the person to sin or not to sin. Boy, I... There's just so much underlying all of the stuff we're talking about right now. Yes. So many faulty presuppositions are behind the way this question so often gets framed. I know you're arriving at them or beginning to arrive at them, but I just want to remind our listeners where we are before we can even start answering the question, what does free will mean? We're first acknowledging that this question usually doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's really, we don't encounter it much 
in the sort of neutral philosopher. It's usually someone who's thinking about themselves or or a family member. And again, it's in the context of the question you posed earlier. How can God be fair in punishing creatures who sin if they don't have a free will to choose sin or not? And one of the faulty presuppositions behind that question is, and of course, I'm able to arbitrate what's fair or not. Yes. Of course, I'm able to define what's fair or not. And that's that's maybe the biggest faulty presupposition in that question of them all. It absolutely flows right from that. As if to say that my own uh, uh, ability to grasp and solve these problems must not be questioned. I can tell what's fair and what's and what's not. You know, actually, the church... <laughs> wrestled with a version of this issue a long time ago, pre-Reformation, and they condemned as a heretic, rightly, Pelagius. And if you had to boil down Pelagianism, one version of a boiled-down Pelagianism is that God wouldn't be fair to give a man a law that he wasn't able to keep, which is another way of saying God wouldn't be fair to... Uh, punish a person for breaking a law if he wasn't free to not break it. Or, or even more pointedly, God would not be fair to send a sinner to hell for committing sins he wasn't able not to commit. Right. That's exactly right. And so the church has seen through that error. And I have to, listeners, just let the uncomfortability... <laughs> of that sit on you for a minute because your first reaction to that is probably to say, yeah, that's right. That's not fair. Or at least that doesn't sound fair to me. If that's where you are, just, just hang in there with us. Hang in there for a minute. Another aspect of the, the moral dilemma and starting from the bad place and another presupposition that's usually behind the question is the assumption that God must deal with, with individual sinners individually and only individually, that it would be some kind of moral foul for God to consider people in any kind of solidarity, in any kind of grouping, in any, any kind of summing up of the many into one. Because it's got to go person by person. Each person's got to be judged on his own merits. Each person's got to be free to do good or bad, or else none of it's fair. And so you could see how that all that is just imposing all kinds of restrictions on God. And it turns out that all those assumptions are plainly false by the teaching of the Bible. That's right. That they're just not right assumptions. The 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 first one that ought to be obvious is that God never answers to anybody outside of himself or above himself. Psalm 135 sort of lays this out. Have you got that there in your Bible? Yeah, in Psalm 135, verse 5, the psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas, and all deeps. And then the psalm yes. grounds why God operates that way. It's because he created this universe. That's right. So that's right. What our God is in the heavens, he does as he pleases. Yes, yes. And so God's judgments are always going to be based on himself and whatever comports with him. 
whatever agrees with God is good and whatever is opposed to God is bad. And that's where your standards of good and bad come from. That's where your standards of uh, moral justice come from. Whatever God does is right. Oh, that that can't be said more or more clearly. When we're trying to decide what is loving, hmm. we first say, what has God done? Yes. Okay, that's what's loving. When we're trying to decide what is just or fair, we look to the scriptures and see what has God done. Okay, that informs me of what is just and fair. Um, we can't have our own foolish, creaturely judgments about these things. Um, to do otherwise is to call God onto the carpet, which is the most absurd notion you can think of as a creature. That's right. So, yeah, we look to the scriptures, see what God has done, and then let that be the standard against which we measure things like love and justice and the rest. We mustn't let our doctrine of creation elevate us inappropriately. We, We humans do have an innate sense of fairness that's created. It's also an innate sense of fairness that's fallen. But the sense that we have is simply derived from God. Ours can't be as good as his. Ours is analogous to his. It's dependent upon his. But whatever we are, we are image of God. He's the source of all these things. So it's a, it's a foul to say God's got to meet my standards of fairness. It's also just unbiblical to say that God must deal with individual sinners individually only, or it wouldn't be fair. Because as Romans chapter 5 makes abundantly plain, that's not, in fact, what he does. The Bible teaches us plainly that all humanity is fallen in Adam. Now, we're not going to take our whole broadcast. We, you could go back and listen to the one on covenants. We talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Everybody's in Adam is represented by Adam, and that's solidarity. That's a principle of the one and the many, where one stands for many. And that is the principle by which God deals with humanity. It's the principle by which he saves us, because the one Christ stands for the many who are in Christ by faith alone. So it's just it's just false to say that God has to deal with individual sinners individually. And it would also be horrible, horrible news. Oh, my goodness. I mean, again, we don't have time to develop this enough, but but the person who's upset about God handling things from the perspective of solidarity is going to bump up against one of the central tenets of the good news of the Lord Jesus that's Christ. Exactly. That's, that's, that's for exactly unpacking another right. time. Well, we could... Go on and look at other scriptures. We don't have to. Romans 11 reiterates that mankind is unable to render a judgment on God's judgments. Uh, you know, who has known the mind of the Lord and, you know, who has been his counselor and, and who can comment? God's just judgments are above us and above our ways. And, and I, I, I pardon the interruption, Craig, but I, I want to linger here for just a little bit. Please. Because in, I think in our culture, in our day and age, what's in vogue is to kind of coddle these things to make doubts seem virtuous in and of themselves. Um, when the Bible has an entirely different perspective on 
creatures who would call God into question. I mean, this doxology that you just mentioned at the end of Romans chapter 11 is a great place to go. But earlier in that unit in Romans chapter 9, when Paul says, who are you, Clay, to say anything to the potter about what he's doing? Not Clay the name, but you piece of Clay. Yeah, you piece of Clay. (laughs) Maybe you are named Clay. But regardless, you're a a piece of Clay. Um, You're a real piece of Clay, by the way, Craig. I've been wanting to say that to you. Um, But then you go back to the end of, of the book of Job, and a man who has suffered the loss of his children the loss of all of his property, the loss of his health. When he starts to get a little highfalutin <laughs> and call God on to the carpet, then what does God do? God answers Job. It says, tell me, where were you when the world began? And Job's final answer is, I'll put my hand over my That's mouth. That's right. And really, it must be said that when we go about looking at what the great God of all of heaven has done in the scriptures, and we think that we properly say, I don't know that I would have done it that way, or I've got problems with how you did it. That's, that's something from which to repent. Yeah. Now, it's, it's not as though we can't explain some things, and we are trying to explain some things in this episode, but it must be said that when you look at the Word and you see what God has done, it is not appropriate for a response yeah. to be, I wouldn't have done it this way. That's or right. Or, I'm not pleased that you did it That's this right. way. You know, Mitch, and I might even just tack onto the side of that, that this problematic thinking is also what accounts for sometimes, in some cases, for people <clears throat> thinking that the Bible is just too hard for them. Because there are some things in the Bible that are harder to understand than others. That's a given. Yeah, Peter that, acknowledges that in Second Peter about Paul's writing. That's exactly right. But... A lot of times people will say, they'll read something and they'll say, that is just too hard for me to understand. And what they mean is not that I can't understand it, but that I can't accept it. Yeah, It contradicts my my assumptions. It, it doesn't sit well with me, so it can't mean that. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. How about if you just let God's word mean what it says? You'd, you'd do well in life to just take the Bible, let it mean what it says, Ask somebody who knows more than you do if it's one of the harder parts and just say, if God said it, it's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, God, give me the grace to be a man who submits to the word like I'm talking about right now. Amen. Amen. Well, okay. All that was a little bit of starting point, little prolegomena. But we're done apologizing for rabbit trails. If people (laughs) listen to this podcast, they know what they've signed on for. That's right. If you're still listening, it's your own fault. So... What's a better way of coming at the question, what does free will mean? We don't have to ignore the question. We just want to not disqualify the idea based on bad assumptions. So I think the better starting point is to ask, what is a will? What is freedom? And, and how, do those things, how do those things work? So just like every other theological truth, everything goes back to the garden, and uh, we we start with the assumption of the creator-creature distinction. comes up time and time again. First there was God, and then he, there was everything that God made, and, and it will always be that way, the creator-creature distinction. And when God creates his ownership as creator, 
puts in place a kind of dependency that is unbreakable. Creaturely, autonomy is not a rational concept. To conceive of a creature wholly made by God that is wholly sustained by God, because the Bible says that the Lord upholds everything that he makes by the word of his power. In him we live and move and have our being. Exactly so. Now, if that's the construct, there's a God who is independent and autonomous and eternally self-existent. And then there's a creature, a creation that he makes that he governs and sustains by the word of his power. Then your idea about how that creature could be free has got to be qualified. Yes. Because God doesn't create some kind of independent entity that's beside himself that's not under him. There's That just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in creation that there is something that God made that now that he's made it, it's alongside of him and equal to him or, God forbid, above him. Yeah, I, I've i never thought about this, so I'm, I'm sort of thinking in real time here. Uh, so I, I want you to feel free to correct me. But that that seems an irrational idea. It, it's not that God didn't create something beside himself and and even above himself because he didn't want to do that. It's it's an irrational thing. It, it it couldn't exist that God created something that's on par with himself or, as you say, heaven forbid, above himself. That's right. That's right. You know, the Bible does present us with things that God cannot do. And the cannot in cannot do is because they would be, they're non-concepts, irrational. Uh, God can't be not God. Yeah, so that's, which is what we're saying when, for example, the scriptures say he cannot lie. When he can't lie because he can't be not God. He can't change because he can't be not God. And he can't create something that's not a creature. It's not rational. Those are the only two categories, God and creature. If God made it, it's creature. If it's creature, it's not equal to God. It's not beside God. It's not above God. It is sustained by God in some way. It's not autonomous. Rabbit trail alert. But last night, we were sitting in our living room, and I had built a fire in our wood stove, and we were talking to the kids. It's the Christmas season as Craig and I record this podcast. And I was telling them about when St. Nicholas, maybe this happened, maybe it didn't. I hope it did because it's a great story punched Arius in the face. <laughs> you've heard uh, you've heard the story from church history uh, because Arius was asserting that Jesus Christ was not eternal and therefore was not God and therefore was a creature. So what you're talking about this creature creator distinctive was something that I was talking to my kids about last night. Now they were mostly interested in the St. Nicholas punching a guy in the face yeah. uh, piece of the story. Um, Somebody should have punched Arius. Well, I I think so. But he was getting after Jesus having been created. But it's, it's what you're talking about. There really is only the creator and then the creation. And, you know, Ari, uh, the heresy of Arianism is exactly. that Jesus Christ was creation and therefore not 
uh, All right. not creator. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. So, what I'm trying to assert here is that creaturely autonomy is impossible. The creature can't be autonomous. He can't be a law to himself. So, if the creature is, put it in quotes, free, he cannot be altogether free. You have to mean free in some sense, free in some qualified sense, because whatever you could possibly mean rationally about a creature being free, you can't mean that he's free to act as God, who's the only one who can be autonomous. So freedom is qualified by creatureliness. Furthermore, <laughs> when you talk about a person being free to do things, now this is this could take us not just down a rabbit trail, but into a whole other room in the library, and we won't go there. But you need to get your mind around the fact that in order for a person to know something, in order for a thing to be known, that thing has to be fixed. A thing that is not fixed is also unknowable. Now, you just pause. That sounds fine because I've said it sort of philosophically. God knows everything. God knows everything. He knows everything that is going to happen. And so it turns out that future events for God cannot be contingent upon something outside of God. Because if they were contingent, he couldn't know them. They'd be unknowable. It'd be no weakness on God's part. It would, it would be irrational to say a thing can be known if it's not fixed. How can God say, you're going to get to the T intersection and turn right if you haven't decided yet whether you're going to turn left or right? And if that truly is contingent, it's unknowable because it doesn't exist yet. It isn't fixed yet. Now, that all touches on the whole wide realm of epistemology and what does it mean to know things. But all I'm trying to do is assert that fact and let you stew on it if it makes you stew. But nothing can be free in the sense of it being an absolute contingency upon me, upon the creature. Can't be a contingency with respect to God. Now, God has the freedom to do whatever he pleases. That's what the psalm you read says. God does whatever he pleases. Turns out that while the creature may do what he pleases in a limited, qualified, controlled sense, the creature cannot trump God's good pleasure. It is an impossibility. So to, to, to just sort of consider the creature and God to be operating in separate realities is just nonsense. God is here. He's upholding all things. He's doing whatever he pleases. Nothing the creature can do can undo what God does. And everything that God knows is fixed. So you can't think of the creature as having freedom in that sense. That kind of freedom doesn't exist in the created realm. So if people are 
a little bit familiar with this conversation, the word that might pop into their minds is determinism. Hmm. So how do you address the person who says, well, all you're sounding like you're talking about is the, is the most rank sort of determinism. There are wrong ways to think about, um, there are wrong ways to think about what it is we're, we're trying to say here where determinism is concerned. Well, it just turns out, Mitch, that yeah, while determinism has been used as a dirty word, um, there's kind of a either or binary this or that yes. on or off switch That's right. that you're faced with. That's right. Here, either things are determined or they're not. If you flip the switch and say they're not, you've said a whole list of things that limit God and his capabilities. God can't know what they are because they're not fixed. God can't make promises and keep them because he can't know what's going to happen. He can't know what the people are going to do. And and it, it it's a science fiction concept for someone to say, well, God looks through the quarters of time and he sees ahead uh, what people are going to do. That doesn't change the dilemma. If he sees it, it's because it's there. And it's fixed. Yeah. And all the time travel movies have always tried to fudge around that kind of problematic issue, right? Is the future fixed or not? Well, if I see it, there it is. Yeah. It is fixed. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, determinism is just an, an ugly word for creatureliness. <laughs> That's all that we're back to. We have to get our minds around the fact that we're creatures who are dependent on God. Yeah, and if... If if a person doesn't like determinism, and I don't I don't like that word because of the baggage that usually gets uh, added to it, but but to deny what sometimes gets called determinism is to contradict the scripture, which says, among many other things, that God knows the end from the beginning. <laughs> That's right. This is, these are inescapable facts, and we're always wanting to put ourselves under the scriptures to believe the things that the scriptures teach, and among the things that the scriptures teach is that uh, God knows everything, which means everything yeah. is fixed. And that he has purposed certain things from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world. He purposed that certain things would be. Those things have to be fixed. They can't be contingent on somebody else helping God out to make what he wants happen. So, now, I said we're taking the, we're pulling the question apart. What is... What is a will and what is freedom? So we've dabbled with what is freedom. It, it might be hard for people to swallow, but freedom as it's normally conceived is just a bad concept. Um, it, we need better language, at least, to describe what's going on because it's all going on in the context of creatureliness and non-autonomy uh, with God upholding by the word of his power and ruling everything whatsoever he has made. But the other question is, what is what is a will? What does it mean to say that people have a will? And and so that goes back to, again, the garden, back to the creation. God made man in his own image. And one of those aspects is that man is, we can use the word volitional. Volition is just another word for will, so we haven't really explained anything <laughs> by saying that but what you said it in latin and so I, that's, that's that's always that's better something. so that i think a simplistic description might be to say 
that the creature that God made is able to think and to want and to act. And those things jumbled up together are his volition. Um, he, that's a way of saying he does what he wants. He thinks a thing. He desires a thing. He acts on a thing. It, Jonathan Edwards famously uh, described the human condition, some, boiled it down to two faculties of the human soul, as Edwards would put it, which he called the understanding and the inclination. And I'm, I'm really, I think I'm just saying what Edwards said. When I say people are able to think and able to want and able to act, I think able to think is Edwards' understanding, which it means able to evaluate, able to judge, and able to decide you like something or you don't like it. And then able to want and act, that when people figure out, they judge what it is that they like, they call a thing good or bad, they, they say it's for me, it's not for me, then they lean into it or they lean away from it. That's why he uses the word inclination. They go for it or they run away from it. And if you think about it for a minute, I think Edwards is profoundly right that you could take all human activity apart and boil it down to those ideas. That's what people do. They go through the world and they look at everything and they, they go for something or they go away from something. And Edwards, of course, said, we're not doing Edwards this morning, but that some of those inclinations are very weak. People are not strongly inclined between a lot of things that they may find under creation, but that the strongest of those inclinations are the ones that he calls the affections. And then he, that loops us back into man being in the image of God, made for God, made to worship God. Man is created, in other words, to have true affections for God, to be wholly inclined toward God, to have to see God, to know him for who he is, and then to love him for who he is. Um, so man's a volitional creature in that, in that sense. Part of what has to be accepted is that the will of a creature, is really, I think I could be so bold as to say, the will of any being, uh, even God, I think, I think it's okay to say it this way, is constrained and defined by the nature of that one. It's what the person is in himself that determines his will. Um, and that's why we said before, there's things that God cannot do. According uh, to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. God can't lie. God can't sin. God cannot deny himself. Those are all plain statements of the Bible. And that's because God can only be God. It is not in his nature to lie. It is not in his nature to sin, which would be to be opposed to himself. And it's not in his, in his nature to deny himself. That's just not who he is. So we don't really call those decisions based on God's free will. <laughs> we just say God's not free not to be God. And so he continues to be God. And, 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 and so humanity is the same. God made us. He made us with a constitutive nature. He constituted us with a particular nature. He made us to be a certain way. And that way that we are defines and constrains what our wills are. 
the, the Bible's replete with this kind of idea. Apple trees do not bear pears, but they do bear apples by virtue of the fact that they are apple trees. That's just what they do. It's their nature to do that. Now, apple trees aren't people, but we could we would we would say the apple tree doesn't bear apples because it wills to bear apples. It bears apples because it's an apple tree. And I said in my class, this is stupid, but I said it, uh, I, Craig Combs, am free to climb up on the roof of Christ Memorial Church and under my own power fly to the moon. I'm, I'm free to do that, and I'm free to will to do that. But I am not able to do that. And so we have to understand that the nature speaks to the ability of the creature, of the person, even of God. So this is something I was listening this this past week, not on purpose, but uh, it was what what came up. I was listening to our episode on what is a human being, and a lot of what we're talking about here was introduced in in that episode, and now we're unpacking it. Hmm. But it bears repeating and bears lingering on. This is essential to the conversation. What does it mean to have free will? A will is for any being, as you've said, bound by that being's nature. So anything as a, as a, the concept of a totally free will is non-existent. A will is free only according to, uh, the nature to that, to that being's nature. That's exactly right. No, I think that, I think that's, that's the case. And now you just follow that path a little further and we start to, get our arms around the question that's that's been on the table the the original man in the garden he had if you wish to call it this he had a free will what that means is he was morally upright and he was able to do what god told him to do god told him eat freely from all the trees don't eat from the one tree and adam's nature permitted him the ability to do that. It was in his nature to do that. Now, his free nature introduces a problem we're not going to touch on today, the problem of evil. How could it be that Adam then chose to sin? Isn't that the essence of free will? The nature with which God provided Adam was clearly, according to the Bible, the Bible's representation of it, not a permanent fixed, permanently fixed state of affairs. He was still changeable. So he was morally upright, but he was changeable. And that sets Adam apart from really everybody else. But we know what happened. Adam sinned and his nature was changed. And that's a critical piece for us to understand. When Adam fell into sin, how does the Bible describe what happens to fallen sinners. It says the foolish hearts are darkened. It says they become the slaves of unrighteousness. It it changes the nature of the person. They're no longer wholly inclined only toward God. Now the creature is inclined in bad directions. The image of God in him is twisted and so on. Um, maybe we'll do an episode on 
the problem of evil. Yeah, it's a topic we get lots of questions about pretty regularly. Yes. And the listener won't be any more satisfied at the end of that episode. They will not. Than, <laughs> than at the beginning. That's just sort of the nature of that discussion. That's right. But based on everything that we've said so far in terms of trying to analyze what freedom and autonomy are, we even have to conclude that this free act that Adam committed in the garden was not a contingency with God. Uh, it's, it's not that it, it hadn't been determined yet that God couldn't have known it. It's clearly uh, not a contingency, but we have to confess, and the Westminster Confession puts it in the language of decree, that God decreed what had happened. God's not blamable for it, but uh, this free act, so to speak, of Adam does not in any way infringe upon the entire sovereignty of God. But the place we want to go in this conversation is the Bible makes it plain to us that since Adam, all the sinners are slaves to sin. I don't know how else you might want to say it, but it's hard for me to talk about slaves having a free will. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard concept. You can argue it, though. Yeah. Even if you look at human slavery... There is a sense in which the slaves are free to choose to obey or disobey their master. There's a sense in which they're yeah, free, yeah. but not a very good sense, is it? <laughs> because they're all bound up. But the sl man's slavery to sin is, is more than that because we're not just talking about external coercion. And that's one of the categories that people often get hung up on. They want man to have a free will and for there to be no external coercion, like somebody else is making me do it. And I'm okay with that. I don't think the slavery we're talking about is external coercion. I think it's internal condition yeah. that we're talking about. We're talking about the, the fact that the nature has been changed, and so now the ability has been limited. It's been compromised. And the, the sinner is no longer able to do righteousness. Yeah, which is, you know, that, that ability is so inherent to this conversation that we're talking about. So, when you sum all that up, you know, how do we answer the question, does man have a free will? Of course, I always want to answer it by saying it depends on what you mean by calling it a free will. I'm happy to call to call man's will a free will if what you mean is people go through life making choices and they do what they want to do. I'm going to agree with you. That's what they do. It's just that all they ever want to do is bad. All they ever want to do is sin. All they're able to do is anger God and they're not able to please God, bring themselves to God, come to God, or change their own condition. So you can call that freedom if you want to. But I don't like calling it that because it doesn't sound very, very free to me. And so the implication of all that is that if anybody's going to be saved who's in that kind of condition, God's going to have to go first. God's going to have to do something because people are not going to be able to get themselves out of that condition and into a better, into a better place.
Well, as we make our initial descent uh, into our, our landing place here, I want to take it out of the realm of, of theory. I mean, Craig, you and I are pretty comfortable living in the land of theory and just talking philosophically, but I have to imagine that there are parents listening who are hearing that everything is fixed and they have lost children. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my four children, eight, seven, four, and two, you know, I, we haven't <clears throat> baptized any of them. Um, and there are lots of, of people listening with, with lost children who think, well, my goodness, what am I supposed to do when you're telling me that everything is fixed? What hope do I have? Why, why pray? Why evangelize? Why, why get up in the morning if everything is, is determined? Yeah. Uh, so help us to begin thinking about what we're talking about in some practical yeah. kind of boots on the ground ways. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, my, my instinctive answer to that dilemma is don't seek for hope by fabricating a reality that's not, that's not true. There should be no hope in anything you make up. If there's hope in this world, it's God given hope. Yeah. And the reality is, there is God-given hope in this world because the whole of the scriptures is telling us that God is in the process of implementing his grand rescue plan for sinners. The Bible puts us in the worst possible place. If we really understand what the Bible is saying, our sin is worse than we've ever thought it was. We're more helpless than we ever thought we, we were. We're, we're less savable than we ever believed ourselves to be. It really is, woe is me, I'm undone. Nothing could help me unless, unless God does. Yeah. And the glory of the gospel message of the Bible is that God is saving sinners. He is. He's saving people, a vast multitude of people who are fallen in Adam. They're born in Adam. They're condemned in Adam. But God has sent Jesus Christ to call men out of Adam and into himself. Yeah. And that's where the hope lies. Yeah. The hope doesn't lie in my kid's going to be smart enough to use his free will to choose God. Yeah. The hope lies in God being powerful enough to raise dead sinners to life and call them out of Adam and into Christ. My hope is in the Lord. It's not in what my children are going to be able to do. Yes, that's right. And so, uh, you know, don't settle for a shabby hope. Yeah, I, I love my kids the same as everybody else does. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I want the best for them, the eternal best for them. But I know where that comes from. That comes from the gracious act of God. So now I know where to turn my will. I know where to turn my attention. I know where to incline. I'm going to lean into the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to cry out to the merciful God. I'm going to live for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord who sends his son to die for sinners and raises him from the grave so he can call other dead sinners out of their spiritual death and raise them into life and promise them with a, a hope of resurrection and a new creation to come. So it's, it's far from hopeless. It's just that we ought to understand the real saving work 
and not spend our time fretting about an imaginary saving work. Yeah, and there's no hope to be found in things that aren't real. And and you're right when we when we fret, it it tends to betray that our hope is lodged on what a person will or won't or may or may not do instead of being lodged in the God who has revealed himself to be merciful to sinners in his son. Yes. It turns out that mercy is the only thing available to sinners. Free will isn't going to help sinners who are condemned in Adam. Free will isn't going to help them. But mercy from God through Jesus Christ is going to help. So, you know, for the person who struggles with the fairness of salvation, you kind of need to call yourself to account. You ought to at least be honest enough that what you're saying is that you don't think God is very fair in his judgments. But you don't need you don't need to be worried about defending God for his fairness. You should be concerned with laying hold of God's mercy because that's where the action is. Well, my goodness, Craig, how much can be said about this topic of free will? I hope we haven't confused the listeners. I hope we've moved them ever so slightly toward more clarity and more understanding. Well, they're free to read a book. <laughs> well, that, that's true. And when you're talking about will, um, a good place to start is the reformer Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will. And then, you know, again, I, I recommended these books at the end of our What is a Human Being episode because what we've done in this episode is really zoom in that's right. on one portion of that conversation. But a, a, a good systematic theology is is going to have helpful things about anthropology, which is the study of mankind according to the scripture. So, you know, your John Frames, your Herman Bovinks, um, your Wayne Grudem's um, uh, are, are going to have helpful things to say yes. anthropologically about the stuff that we're talking about now. But I want the last word to be, again, that what this conversation does is it finally pushes you toward total submission and trust in the God who, when he took the opportunity to reveal himself, said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If a conversation causes me to finally say, I don't really know everything about what's going on, but I know that that God is in control and I'm going to trust him. That ends up being a very safe, a very good place uh, to rest. Putting your hand over your own mouth and leaning into the Lord Jesus Christ is never a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Craig, thanks for this uh, episode. Our thanks also to John Pastor, our producer and editor to learn more about the church where Craig and I serve among the pastoral staff, Christ Memorial Church, you can go to cmcvermont.org. And if you haven't subscribed to From Dan to Beersheba, go ahead and do that wherever you find us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That helps other people find us. We're really grateful that you've listened again next month. We're going to uh, have a guest for the first time and it'll be our anniversary episode so tune back in for that for Craig I'm Mitch 
Grace and peace to you. Thank you.